you're here for our Wednesday morning Bible study. As you can tell, we're in a little different setting today. I'm sitting here uh, in the midst of an empty sanctuary. Uh, so we're going to be filming in our worship center uh, this morning. Uh, if you're watching later on down the line, uh, we are dealing with the coronavirus outbreak all over our world. Uh, so we're having to cancel our services, cancel our Bible studies. Uh, but we're glad that we can come by means of technology and uh, this video camera that's sitting right in front of me that I'm talking to. Uh, but we're glad that we can gather together in this way and open up God's Word and continue our study through the epistles. So our study through the epistles we're going to jump in today is in First and Second Thessalonians. In our last session, we looked at the introduction to First and Second Thessalonians. And I know that was a lot to consider, especially if you're not familiar with a lot of the things that we talked about. The first thing we did last week is we went through, uh, kind of give an overview of First and Second Thessalonians, and then we talked about because First and Second Thessalonians have a lot of prophetic passages, major prophetic passages. We said that we needed to give a little bit of an introduction to the different views of the end time, the different views of eschatology, as what it's called. So we looked at uh, premillennial. Uh, post-millennial, amillennial. We looked at partial preterism, full preterism. We looked at all of these different ideas that people have had about Bible prophecy all throughout church history. Uh, prophecy has been something that people have not really agreed upon throughout the history. It's changed and evolved with different uh, events in the world uh, and different mindsets and different places where people have come from. So we just uh, let you know about all of those different views. Well, today we're going to uh, uh, look at the text of First and Second Thessalonians and kind of go through the text of this letter uh, of what Paul is trying to say to these churches. So we're going to begin in First Thessalonians, and as we go to First Thessalonians, uh, we're going to look at the first ten verses. The first ten verses, verses one through ten of First Thessalonians chapter one, is your greeting, thanksgiving, uh, the greeting and thanksgiving. As with all of Paul's letters, there's a greeting, but this is one of the shortest greetings that Paul gives. So he begins, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. So after the briefest of all of Paul's salutations and greetings, he begins with a thanksgiving over the Thessalonian believers faithfulness. So what you're going to find is from verses 2 through 10, you're going to find out that Paul had a lot of really good things to say about the believers at the church at Thessalonica. Um, as we find here, uh, three things are mentioned here in, the, uh, in verse number 3. In verse number 3, he says, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your work of faith. The second thing he says is that your labor that was prompted by love, your work of faith, your labor of love. And then the third thing that he mentions here is your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are three wonderful characteristics of this church here in 1 Thessalonians. And this thanksgiving that he gives for them uh, gives way to a reminder of their conversion experience. You know, one thing that I love when Paul is trying to speak to a church and disciple and teach a church, he always goes back to a couple of things. He goes back to, number one, Jesus. 
He goes back to who they are because of Jesus, and he goes back to their conversion experience when they were made new, when they were forgiven of their sins, when they were brought out of darkness and brought into light. And that's what Paul does here. And four things he stresses here. He stresses the Holy Spirit's role in their conversion. Uh, As with Paul uh, being an imitator of Christ, they've experienced great suffering as well. Uh, Number three, the news of their conversion uh, had preceded Paul to Corinth or Achaia. Uh, And the number four, conversion included a turning from idolatry and a waiting for Christ's coming. So if you read through verses four, let me just read a couple of these. Uh, First of all, in verse number four, 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, For we know, brothers and sisters, so he calls them brothers and sisters, loved by God that he has chosen. Those are three amazing ways to describe the believing church. Brothers and sisters, loved by God, and chosen. So those are three amazing things. And then he talks about our gospel came to you with power and with the Holy Spirit. We didn't just come preaching words. There was a movement and an action of the Holy Spirit among you. And it says they welcome the message in the midst of deep and severe suffering. And because of this, they became a model congregation to those in Macedonia and Achaia. And it says the Lord's message had rang out everywhere. Your faith was known everywhere. And their faith of how they turned to the living God from idols and to wait for His Son from heaven, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So the first ten verses are Paul's greeting and thanksgiving for their conversion, bringing them back to their conversion experience. In chapter 2, we find here Paul's recollection of his ministry. Just like in other places and just like in other churches, Paul's apostleship is under attack. People are trying to discredit him. They're trying to discredit his authority as an apostle. They're trying to discredit his gospel. And like he does in many letters, Paul is offering a defense against these people that would oppose him. And just like in other letters, Paul's defense has a lot to do with, you know our ministry. We were among you. We were teaching you. So he starts out in chapter 2, and the first 16 verses of chapter 2 is about this, his, the recalling of his ministry. So he begins in verse 1 of chapter 2, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. When we came to you, it brought results. When we came to you, your lives changed. When we came to you, you received the gospel. And you became followers of Christ. So therefore, that's the proof. The Thessalonian believers were the proof of Paul's ministry. So he goes on to talk about those who uh, would face, would give strong opposition to him in verse number two. He said in verse number three, we appeal that we make, uh, that what we do does not spring from error or from impure motives as if we were trying to trick you. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, Paul defends himself against charges of being a religious huckster, as we have there on our notes. Uh, In 7 through 12, he uses three family images, the image of an infant, the image of a mother, and the image of a father. So Paul defends his apostleship 
using these three family images of an infant, a mother, and a father. So he says when he came to them, in verse number 6, he says, when we came to you, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children. We were like infants. We were gentle. We were innocent. We were harmless. So Paul said, we didn't come to you with all of this authority. This is how we come to you as an infant, as a small child. And then he says, in verse number 7 as well, just as a nursing mother cares for her children. So we came as a nursing mother to care for you, to provide for you, to nourish you. He says, we cared for you. And then he says in verse number 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, as a father deals with his own children, but yet not in a harsh, domineering way. As a father deals with his own children, in verse number 12, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who's called you into his kingdom. So Paul appeals against these opponents. He appeals to his very own relationship with the church at Thessalonica. And then we see uh, in verse number 7, or let's continue on a little bit further, because I think we're going to pick up on a theme here that's going to progress a little more. Uh, when he talks about in that he encouraged them to live lives worthy of the kingdom, uh, he goes into another thanksgiving. He goes into another thanksgiving in verses 13. Uh, he says, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God, you accepted it not as a human word, but as a word from God. So he gives a thanksgiving to them that when they came preaching the word, the Thessalonian believers received that word, not just as Paul's word, but they received it as God's word. And they received it as God's word, and because of that, they began to suffer persecution. So we see here in verse number 14 of chapter 2, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea which are in Christ Jesus, you suffered from your own people. The same things those churches suffered from the Jews. So he's saying you're a church that when you receive the word, you began to suffer persecution. And then he goes and he mentions the persecution that happened to the churches in Judea, which Paul was very familiar with. That when the gospel went to, to the Jewish people, and many of them on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 and then 5,000 believers, and the church grew daily. Well, as the church was growing, uh, great things were happening, but eventually persecution happened. Eventually, Jews turned against their own people and began to persecute them. Well, this was not anything unexpected because Jesus prophesied that it would happen. And when Jesus prophesied it would happen, we see eventually with the stoning of Stephen, it, it came to a head. When Stephen was preaching against the, the corrupt Jewish religion and how the Jews had always hardened their hearts to God, the people stopped their ears. They ran upon Stephen and they stoned him to death. And after that, a persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. So Paul mentions that here. And he says, the same as the churches in Judea suffered from the Jews. In verse 15, he says, who killed the Lord Jesus, and they killed the prophets, 
and they drove us out. He says, they displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. They fill up the measure of their sins. And then Paul makes this statement that we're going to dive into a little bit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Or the wrath of God has come upon them to the uttermost. Or the wrath of God has come upon them fully. Now this idea of the wrath of God coming, uh, we find that all throughout the Old Testament when God deals with his people Israel. We find that in the Gospels. So I want to talk a little bit about when Paul talks about what wrath is coming. I think we need to uh, explore that just a little bit. So Paul is specifically mentioning the Jews who were persecuting the churches of God and persecuting the church of God who were their fellow brothers, the Jews. Well, way back in Matthew, let's look together in Matthew chapter 3, we find some very interesting words. In Matthew chapter 3, we find John the Baptist preaching. And as John the Baptist is preaching here in Matthew chapter 3, he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to the baptism that John the Baptist is having. He's preaching and he's baptizing people. And in verse number 7 of Matthew chapter 3, this is what the Scripture says. But when he, speaking of John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees Coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Or to flee from the coming wrath? So John the Baptist looked at those Jewish Sadducees and Pharisees, and he said, There is a wrath coming upon you. Who has warned you to flee? From the wrath to come. And then he tells them to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And he's telling them that that because of the hardness of their hearts and because they wouldn't repent, that wrath and judgment was coming. And Paul is obviously recalling Jesus' words that he spoke to those that there would come a wrath in that generation. And that you could be rescued by fleeing away from Jerusalem and following the words of of Jesus. And Paul kind of echoes back when he talks about how the Jews always fill up the measure of their sin and the wrath. There is wrath that is coming upon them. So we have to, one thing we have to understand is that in all of these scriptures, you know, there is a context. And Paul is writing and he's communicating these words to those people there in that generation. Audience relevance and context is so very important. So as we jump back in, I know we took a detour. I like to do that. But as we jump back into 1 Thessalonians, we want to look at verses 17 through uh, chapter 3. We won't read a lot in this section. Uh, I will read off your notes here. Uh, This is Paul, the Thessalonians, and Timothy. Paul picks up the narrative of his relationship with the Thessalonians. Since he, Timothy, and Silas were orphaned from a short time, since uh, they could not be there, Satan hindered them from being there. First, he reports on his own attempts to return and the reason for it. Second, he reports on sending Timothy 
to see how they were doing in light of his absence and their suffering. And thirdly, he expresses his great relief over Timothy's report about your faith and your love. So they were, you know, Paul was absent from them for a while, and he talks about the reason he was absent. He talks about sending Timothy, and yet he hears good news about the believers. But yet there were some things that they were lacking. So Paul says, I want to see you again. He says this in chapter 3, verse number 10. I want to see you again uh, that I would supply to you that which you are lacking. So there's still some things he wants to teach them. Which brings us to chapter 4. And as we come here to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he begins, as for other matters. Brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, and in fact, you are living that way. Now, the first thing he's going to say here is observe a clear shifting. Paul moves on to pick up what it's like, and the first term or the first item that he picks up is sexual immorality. And we've seen this theme play out most importantly or most prominently in 1 Thessalonians. Because these Thessalonians turned to God from idols, a lot of the idol worship that day had to do uh, around the issue of sexual immorality and temple prostitutes and this pagan type uh, worship in that day. So that's why you know, Paul had issues with those in Corinth. Uh, and he had to instruct those on you know, how to properly and uh, the proper view of sexual relations was. So he, the first item he deals with is here is sexual immorality. And he's reminding them uh, that it was God who called them and gave them his spirit and calls us to live a pure sexual life, a life of purity. He moves on to matters of love uh, and then that some were unnecessarily being burdensome to others, which we'll pick up with later. But let me just read a couple of verses here in chapter 4. He says in verse number 3 of chapter 4, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, and that you should avoid sexual immorality, that they shall learn to control their own body in a way that is holy, in a way that is honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. So again, he's drawing this cultural distinction between how pagan idol worshipers lived in Thessalonica and in in Macedonia versus how God's people of the kingdom are to live. Um, And he gives a warning that anyone who rejects this instruction is really rejecting God. Because this is God's way. This is the way of the kingdom. So to not follow this is to reject God in the ways of the kingdom. And then he says, you know, God who gave you the Holy Spirit. You don't want to reject God who gave you the Holy Spirit. Very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So therefore, don't be joined with the temple prostitutes. So he makes a very similar connection here that he does in 1 Thessalonians. I mean, in 1 Corinthians. In verse number 9, he talks about how they were taught to love one another, and they were doing that. And Paul encourages them to do it more and more. In fact, in chapter 4, verse number 1, and in chapter 4, verses 8, or verses 9 and 10, he says the same thing. He says, you know, you are uh, living in order to please God. Continue to do that more and more. He says, you're living in love. Continue to do that more and more. So he's encouraging them to live 
a more holy life and continue to live the holy life that they are living because they have God's Spirit. So in essence, he's encouraging them to walk in the Spirit and they will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The, the verse, in verse number 12 of chapter 4, and this is the issue we'll take up more in 2 Thessalonians. He says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you would not be dependent upon anybody. If we backed up one more verse, he said, make it your ambition to live a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. So the underlying issue that he really doesn't develop here is that there are those who for some reason were not working and living off of others. It could be in the light of this next topic we'll discuss, in the light of the, the coming of the Lord, or it could be for other reasons. But in any way, Paul addresses these issues. So that takes us through chapter, verse number 12 of chapter 4. Now we get into some of these other matters. So let's call our attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 13. So as we come to chapter 4, verse number 13, we get into the issue of the coming of the Lord. And this is that prophetic passage that we talked about um, last week or last time we met together as we discussed the different views. Now, the view that you hold, you know, theologically is what view of the end times is going to kind of determine how you read this passage of Scripture. Um, if you are a dispensational believer, if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you believe that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where you find the verse of a pre-tribulational rapture, where God will call the church from the earth up into heaven for a period of seven years, when the dead in Christ will rise and then the church will be raptured or caught up into heaven before the tribulation. Then you believe that after the tribulation, Christ will come a, another time and with the saints. So in the rapture, he comes for the saints. In the second coming, he comes with the saints. So if you're a dispensational believer, you read this passage as the passage about the rapture. Because this is the only scripture in the Bible we find an allusion to the rapture. You know, this is where we get the word rapture from. The word rapture is not in the Bible, but the word rapture comes from the Latin phrase uh, when it says here to be caught up. The Latin translation is where we get the word rapture from. Now, if you lived before dispensationalism was popular in the you know, 1830s, and still today, many people, you would be a historic premillennialist, and you would say these scriptures are not about a rapture before seven years. The, this is the second coming passage. This is the coming of Christ from heaven to earth at the end of history to set up his kingdom. That it's at that time that the, the dead are raised and the living are, are translated, and this is Christ's second coming. So that's the big difference between um, your uh, premillennialist and your dispensational premillennialist. Uh, and then you have your preterist who interpret this passage very, very differently from those two. So that's why I said, depending on you know, what your view of eschatology is, will be dependent upon how you read this passage of Scripture. But let's just read the passage of Scripture and just look at what's happening here. Because one thing I think Paul is doing, you know, he is 
teaching eschatology or end times prophecy, but I don't really think that's his main goal here. I think Paul's main goal here is not really theological, even though it is theological, but I don't think his goal is theological. I think his goal is pastoral. His goal is to comfort the believers. Because there's a certain issue here that the church in Thessalonica is wondering about. So let's read what that issue is. In verse number 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who sleep in death, about those who have previously died. Now, we can only speculate who this is speaking of. You know, is it people in their church? Is it people in their own family? You know, is it those who have died in, in persecution before? Uh, you know, are these the Old Testament saints, everybody that's died up until that point? Uh, who are these who sleep in Christ? More than likely, it's probably those of their loved ones in their congregation who have passed away. And in passing away, the church has a great concern that they are going to miss out on God's future. They're going to miss out on Christ's coming. Uh, the word here for coming is the word uh, parousia. For parousia means uh, appearing, presence, coming. Uh, so the question is, what happens to our dead loved ones? What happens to our dead uh, church members, if you will? What happens to those Christians who have perished? Are we in better shape than they? Because we're alive and we, we'll be here for Christ's parousia, we'll be here for Christ's coming. So I think the issue Paul is addressing is, even though he teaches theology and eschatology, his goal is really pastoral. It's to comfort the hearts of his congregation who he loves. So we find here, uh, as we read in our passage here, uh, the issue here is about those in the church who have died, and Paul is consoling the church, giving them hope, and assuring them that the departed loved ones had not missed out on Christ's coming, and the living have no advantage over the dead in Christ. Do the living have an advantage over the dead? Will the living experience something at, at Christ's coming that the dead do not? And Paul's answer is no. So he says, I do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who sleep in death. So that you do not grieve as those who have no hope, as the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in him. So they're not lost. They're not lost. They're not dead. He says, verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive and left into the coming of the Lord will certainly, I think here's the key phrase, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So because our, those in our church have fallen asleep or died, will we have an advantage over them? Will we experience something they will not experience because they are dead and we are alive? And Paul says, absolutely not. He says, those who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then he, he says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of an archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise 
First, there will be a rising of the dead. After that, we who are still alive and left will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we, you can't miss that we, because there's the loved ones of the past, there's those that are alive. Do Do we who are alive, do we have an advantage over those who are dead? Paul says no. He says at the parousia, the, the appearing, the presence, at the coming of Christ, you know, when, when all this happens, when the trump sounds and, and all of that, the dead will rise first. The living have no advantage. In fact, the dead have an advantage. The dead rise first, then we who are alive, we will be called up with them to meet the Lord. And so we, we all, will be with the Lord forever. We will be with the Lord. And then he ends in verse 18. Therefore, encourage or comfort one another with these words. So that's Paul's goal. His goal is to comfort and encourage the church. So Paul is speaking pastoral. And while we you know, have our views of what this is and what it will look like and, and when it happens, Paul's point is to comfort the hearts of those who are concerned about what has happened to their loved ones who have died, that they will not be left out of anything, they will not be forgotten, they will, they, will, they will be in the presence of God, and we will all be together with them. And he says to comfort one another with these words. So Paul again is speaking pastoral. So whether you are a dispensational believer that believes in, in a pre-tribulation rapture and a second coming, or you believe that this is the second coming, you know, where you're a preterist that, you know, puts these historical, you know, events in, in the past. The heart is the same, that we will all be together with the Lord, that the living have no advantage over those that have perished, and that those that belong to Christ will be with Christ and will be together. And that's the overall comfort and the overall purpose and point of this verse. Now he goes on to chapter 5, and he goes to a different subject. So he does not want them to be ignorant. So that's something, and just an interesting fact, here in 1 Thessalonians, he oftentimes reminds them of things they've been told in the past. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he's telling them something because he doesn't want them to be uninformed. Um, In chapter 5, he's going back to telling them things that he has taught them before. So in chapter 5, this is the issue of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now, that's a term we haven't really talked about. You know, we talked about the, the coming of Christ, the different views of Christ's coming. We talked a little bit earlier on about the wrath that was to come. The day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord has Old Testament implications. The day of the Lord alludes to the fact, in Old Testament concepts, really the day of the Lord was when God brought judgment upon a nation. Usually by bringing another nation into over take them. And the day of the Lord was like a two-sided coin. To the wicked and the unrighteous, it was a day of judgment, destruction, suffering. To the righteous, it was a day of vindication and salvation. So what we see here, again, now, this also will determine what you believe about the future or the past will determine how you see this. You know, many people believe that this is speaking of in the future during the tribulation time. But I want you to know 
you know, Paul is speaking to them as if they are going through some things now. Now, we know a, certain, a couple of certain facts. The first fact that we know is that this is a church that was going through suffering and persecution already. So they weren't waiting for persecution. They were going through persecution. And also, the New Testament churches and the New Testament writers had the expectation that the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord was imminent in their day. They believed they would be a part of it. Paul, we who are alive, you know, I think Paul expected to be alive at the coming of Christ. Now we speak to them here about the day of the Lord. And the wording is as if the day of the Lord was imminent. And they were to be watchful about the day of the Lord. So in chapter 5, he begins, Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and the dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well. So again, he's talking to them about something they already know. Something they've already been taught. You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night. Now we'll talk about that in just a moment. He says in verse number 3, While people are saying... Now I want you to see there's a distinction here. There are the people that are saying, then there are those in the church. There are those who live in darkness. There are those who live in light. There are those who sleep. There are those who are awake. There are those who are drunk. And there are those who are sober. And these two are coexisting at the same time. They're coexisting at the same time. So he says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them. Suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So again, the day of the Lord was a day of judgment for the unrighteous. But it's a day of salvation for the righteous. Look in verse number 4. But you, brothers and sisters, now we just talked about them, but you, brothers and sisters, you are not in darkness, so that day should not surprise you like a thief. Let me read that again. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. He's saying that day should not surprise you, but it surprises them. To them it's like a thief. To you it's not like a thief. For that day will not overtake you. That day will not surprise you. Because you, verse 5, are children of the light. And you are children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep in the night. Those who get drunk, get drunk in the night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, 
but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice that this day of the Lord is like a thief in the night. But the day comes as a thief for the unrighteous. It comes as a thief in judgment for the wicked. It comes as a thief for those who are asleep and not watching. It comes as a thief to those who are drunk and not sober. But God has not appointed us who are of the day. He's telling the church, He's not appointed you who are of the day. You who are sober. You who are awake and alert. He's not appointed you to wrath. He's appointed you to salvation. So Jesus also alludes to his coming in the day of the Lord, being as a thief in the night. And what does he instruct his disciples to do? He says in Matthew 24 and 25, he teaches them to be watchful. He teaches them to be sober. He teaches them to be ready. So we see here that there is a clear distinction in the book of 1 Thessalonians between those unrighteous who suffer judgment at the day of the Lord and those righteous who receive salvation. So as you see here, the, he's saying live different than those in the world. So, so these two are coexisting in this day of the Lord that is coming as a thief, he tells the church at Thessalonica. So then we come here and we come down to chapters, uh, verses 12 through 28 of chapter 5. Uh, and in turn, Paul encourages uh, respect and honor for the leaders. He urges healthy community relationships. He exhorts basic piety and prods them to encourage prophecy, but to test it and hold fast that which is good. Uh, the prayer in particular uh, recapitulates many of the items that was addressed. So you can read there in verses 12 through 28, Paul's final exhortations and his final greetings and prayer. And that brings us to the end of you know, this little uh, book, five short chapters of Thessalonians. But as you can see, there's a lot of issues in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, there's a lot of encouragement. So most people just know 1 Thessalonians for uh, the, the end time or for the, the prophecy stuff. Now, I would encourage you, when you go back to read this, read it you know, deeper than that. Read it to what he was trying to get the, the believers there to live in the day that they were living in then. How they were to live as people of God in an uncertain world with an uncertain future and the, the heart of the message that he's trying to get them to see. He's trying to comfort them. He's trying to encourage them. He's, he's praising them for their faith and their love. He's encouraging them to continue to live righteously and holy in this, in this world. And I think when we look at that, that simple message, you know, wading through all of the, the prophecy and the views and the millennials and, and all of this stuff, and, and we get onto the heart of the letter, I think we see what Paul is trying to get at that the people of God should live as the people of God in the world around them. And that we too today, even in the midst of our own uncertain times, we can live as the people of God in an uncertain world today as well. So go and be people of the light. Go and be people who are awake and alert and sober, living as the people of God. And as he mentions many times, Encourage one another. Comfort one another. That's the message of 1 Thessalonians.